Welcome, everybody. Uh, tonight we're going to see. Uh, tonight we're going to get introduced to the big giant Goliath, and um, and let's take a moment of silent prayer uh, before we enter into the study of the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your Word. We ask that you enlighten us by it and. Plant it deep within our hearts that we may be transformed by it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just a quick little review of where we are in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Well, we're in chapter 16. We're going to get into chapter 17 today. Uh, King Saul has rebelled against God twice, and God has rejected Saul as king. God has instead chosen one of Jesse's sons, the least likely of all the boys, the youngest who is out in the field tending the sheep. And God chose him because of his heart. God chose him because he was a man after the Lord's own heart. God removed the indwelling of his spirit from Saul. And in place of that, God sent an evil spirit, the text says, to terrorize Saul. This is evidencing that Saul's days are numbered. And God instead sent His Spirit to young David, to indwell David. This is a sign that David is God's choice. Saul is suffering under God's judgment, under the hand of God's judgment, and he knows it. Because in verse 15, his servants tell him, there is an evil spirit in verse 15 of chapter 16. Saul's servants say, there is an evil spirit from God that is terrorizing you. You would think, that when God sends you an evil spirit to terrorize you, that your response should be, God, what have I done wrong to merit this intense judgment? But Saul is disinterested in restoration with God. He's not interested in confession. He's not interested in repentance. Those things require submission. Those things require humility. And that, that is not what Saul is interested in. And so the king's servants accommodate their master. They recommend something to try and numb the pain. They don't recommend that, that you confess your sin, Paul, Saul. They don't recommend that you, you repent, Saul. They recommend a good playlist, a good playlist of music, some calming music. Go get yourself a nice playlist on a good music app. And King Saul says, that's a great idea. One of the king's servants knows of a good musician and so we saw last time in chapter 16, verse 18, that one of the young men said, Behold, he's speaking to Saul, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who was a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech, and a handsome man. And the Lord is with him. David has all these qualities that are described here. He's a great musician. He's a courageous man, he's a warrior, he's well-spoken, he's handsome, and that is quite, quite, quite a combination, right? I mean, this is a man who will kill the enemies of Israel with his hands, not some guy who sits behind a computer and pushes a button and a smart, smart bomb gets sent 2,000 miles away. This is a man who kills the enemies of Israel. The, 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 the song that the, that the women will sing is that Saul kills his thousands and David his tens of thousands. So this is a man who kills the enemies of Israel one-on-one, -on -one, intimate, close-up combat, and then 
with those same hands, he writes roughly half of all of the music of Israel. Roughly half of all of the, the, the psalms in the Psalter are written by David. And in fact, he is described in 2 Samuel 23, verse 1, as the sweet psalmist of Israel. This is quite a combination in this man. God made David this way, and he made him this way from inside his mother's womb with all of these qualities, and David understands this. David knows it. David wrote in Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16, the psalm that y'all have heard before. For you form my inward parts, David says. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you. He's speaking to God, of course. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. And my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. He's, he's, he's using poetic language to describe how God made him in his mother's womb. Verse 16, your eyes have seen my unformed substance and in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. You see, the devil and the devil's world system tells us that we are nothing, that we're an accident, that we're the product of random evolutionary chance. But David says, no, 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 no. You are fearfully and wonderfully made from within your mama's womb, from the beginning. That's not just the DNA of our cell structure. That's our personality because the babies come out of mama's womb with a personality that's already crafted by God. The baby comes out of the mama's womb full of gifts, full of characteristics that God has instilled in the child. We all have those. We all have different gifts. We have our personalities. We have our qualities. We have our skills. They're different but they all come from God. And so, of course, when you see a passage like this, you are forced to a conclusion that is unavoidable. And the conclusion is that, of course, abomination, abortion is an abomination before God because it seeks to snuff out God's image bearers from the very moment of conception when the image bearer is most vulnerable. And so it makes sense that God in the flesh, that Jesus said that the devil was a murderer from the beginning. He orchestrated the deaths of Adam and Eve, and he orchestrates the deaths of the little babies in their mother's womb, which should be the safest place for a baby. But in the world that we live in, it is often not the case. The, the most important part of David's qualities is that the Lord is with him. I'm not saying that the Lord was with David in his mother's womb. I'm not saying he had that quality in his mother's womb like these other qualities that the Lord fashioned in his mother's womb. The Lord came to be with David because the, David was humble, because David was interested, interested in doing God's will. When the scripture describes someone or God being with someone, it's a statement about the special presence of God with that person. It's the place of power, and success, and blessing. The world is power-hungry, and we as Christians should be much more power-hungry than the world. We should be much, much, much more power-hungry than the world. I think it is biblical, it is godly to be power-hungry. The problem with the world is that they're not power-hungry enough, because the world seeks the power of the world. 
The world seeks a synthetic, artificial, counterfeit power, our power. But if they were truly power hungry, they would seek the power of the one who is the source of all power, the one from whom all power emanates, the one who is omnipotent, if they were truly power hungry. But this is the great paradox of a godly life, uh, the great paradox of a Christian life. In weakness, you're made most powerful. In humility, you have access to the one who is all powerful. The, the reason I say the problem with the world is that they're not power hungry enough is they're not interested in the power of God. They're interested in their own power. But in order to have the power of God, which is absolute, or to have access to the power of God, which is absolute power, you must be humble. If you're not humble, you're prideful. And if you're prideful, you're interested in your own power, which is a cheap counterfeit for God's power, or the world's power, which is a cheap artificial substitute for God's power. So there is nothing wrong with being power hungry as long as you are hungry for the power of God. And the only way to have that power is in your weakness. It's in your submission, in your humility. Pride produces a temporary fleeting power. But humility and submission to God produces access to true power, the power of Almighty God Himself. The Scriptures declare how God was with many of the mighty men of old. God was with Abraham. God was with Isaac. God was with Jacob. God was with Joseph. God was with Moses, with Joshua, with Gideon, with Samuel, and even with King Saul, the one who God is in the process of removing. Though, Sam, though Saul is in rebellion against God, he still understands the power of God. And so he's not oblivious to the reality that David is someone whom God is with. He understands the significance of that. Saul understands the significance of that. So he tells his servants when his servants say, hey, we know this guy who's a great musician. He has all these qualities, and the most important of which is that the Lord's with him. Saul says, well, that's a great idea. That's a great idea. Bring him in. God is moving events. That's what's happening here. We're seeing divine providence. God is moving events to put David in the king's court so that David will learn about the things of kings. This is an apprenticeship incognito, you might say. God is putting, him, putting David in this apprenticeship, and no one else knows it. The king doesn't know it because the king doesn't know that David has been anointed for the purpose of being the next king, because if the king knew it, he would kill David. The king doesn't know that that is being kept secret, confidential. So keep reading just by way of review from chapter 16. In verse 19, we read this. Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread and a jug of wine and a young goat. Well, I guess we didn't get this far last time. But Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread and a jug of wine and a young goat and sent them to Saul by David, his son. And, in, and, and so, so when, you, when you see both of those, when you see those, those texts together, what we're, what we're observing here in the, the Scripture is a situation where we have a turn of events. This is a turn of events where the one who was with the flock, the one who was unimportant, the one who was out in the field doing the dirty job, the forgettable one, 
the nobody, is now being made a somebody by God because he's invited by the king to join his court. Jesse sends gifts to the king with David because that's a sign of respect. That's what you do with a dignitary. When foreign dignitaries come and visit the president of the United States, they often bring gifts, and those gifts are put in a special location. They often bring gifts, and sometimes the gift is left there on display in the White House for future generations. That's, that's a custom that you do when you're visiting a dignitary. Jesse's not visiting the dignitary, the king of Israel. Jesse is sending his son, and so he's sending a gift as a sign of respect. Keep reading in verse 21. Then David came to Saul and attended him, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. Verse 22, Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David now stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. So it came about whenever the evil spirit from God came to Saul, David would take the harp and play it with his hand, and Saul would be refreshed and be well, and the evil spirit would depart from him. Here we see God elevating David. God isn't just turning against the existing king. He's actively opposing the existing king. He hasn't just rejected him. He has done that. But now he is actively opposing him by sending an evil spirit to terrorize Saul. You see, it is a great act of foolishness, foolishness for us to take God lightly you remember what the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 10, 31. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And Saul has fallen into the hands of the living God. And so what God does in the way that only God can do it is he does both things. He judges Saul and he elevates David at the same time. By judging Saul, he opens an opportunity to promote David because Saul isn't healed of this condition where the evil spirit is terrorizing him, to use the language of the text, unless God's anointed, David, is there to play the harp for Saul. Because when David plays the harp for Saul, because God has enabled David with the indwelling of the spirit, then the evil spirit is, he departs. He's run off. God is doing both things. He's judging Saul and promoting David at the same time. And so no wonder, no wonder Saul loves David greatly, the text says. Saul thinks very highly of him, and that's why he's put him in a position of trust. He makes him his armor bearer. The armor bearer has frequent access to the king. The king is with the armor bearer a lot. The point that we're seeing here in the text is that Saul trusts David, and that's because David is loyal to Saul. Later, Saul will distrust David and hunt him and seek to kill him, not because David is disloyal, but because Saul becomes jealous of David's success. David always respects Saul. He always respects Saul as God's anointed. We have two anointeds right now. David is God's anointed, and Saul was anointed earlier, and Saul is still God's anointed. He will continue to be God's anointed until he is killed later on in these events, about 10-ish years from now. So you have two anointed. You have the, the, the king-to-be, David, and David has respect for the current king, for God's anointed, because David respects God. One flows from the other. 
David is a young man of great maturity. He's probably a teenager here at this time. And we know that, we say that because he takes the throne at age 30, 2 Samuel 5, 4, and Saul will hunt him for at least 10 years trying to, to kill David. So when you do the math, that makes these events somewhere in David's life in the, in the late teens. Maybe he's 18, 19, 17, somewhere around that, that, uh, that age. The point is David is very mature for his age, and no one's telling the king at this point that David has been anointed the future king, because if Saul knew it, he certainly wouldn't let him into his court, and he would be hunting David now. When we read last time that Samuel anointed David in the presence of his brothers, so in the, in, in the presence of his family, pours the oil. I mean, th- th- this, is a, this is a serious ceremony. Pours, pours the oil on his head out of the, 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 the ram horn. Everybody's around. You have to scratch your head saying, okay, well, why are you anointing him? I mean, there had to be some conversation. This is Samuel, the, 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 the big dog who came to, to little itty-bitty Bethlehem and is anointing this son of Jesse. We don't have the answer to that question. I think it's fair to assume that David knows the purpose for which he was anointed, that Samuel told David. And I think it's also fair to assume that perhaps no one else knows the reason for the anointed. They may, for the anointing that Samuel did of, of David, they may have concluded, Jesse may have concluded, well, David's anointed to do some special service in the king's court but not the idea that David would be anointed as the new king. I think if other people knew that, the word would be out, and Saul would never have invited him to, into his court. In fact, he'd be persecuting him. Now, let me talk for a minute about the sequencing. There's a time sequencing issue that's going on right here. In chapter 17, when David fights and kills Goliath, Saul knows nothing about David. The very next chapter that we're going to read, Saul doesn't know anything about David. Saul doesn't know where he's, who, who David is, and Saul doesn't know whose son, he, whose son David is. When you know someone, you know, oh yeah, he's the son of Jesse. You know, Saul's the son, the son of so-and-so. That, that's just the title that, that, of, of how you would describe someone. In chapter 17, when David kills Goliath, Saul doesn't know his name, and doesn't know his father's name. He doesn't know who he is. But we're reading in chapter 16, at the end of chapter 16, that David has been invited into Saul's court by Saul. And David is ministering to Saul, playing the harp, and the evil spirit leaves, and, and, and Saul greatly loves David. So what's happening here from a time sequencing? Turning your Bibles, please, to, to chapter 17, verse 55. I want you to see something here. Chapter 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 55. The time sequencing that's occurring, we, we, get, we get kind of a... Well, in this, in this passage, what I want you to see is how Saul doesn't know David. So verse 55 reads like this. Now when Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this young man? And Abner said, by your life, O king, I do not know. 
The king said, you inquire whose son, you inquire whose son this is. So when David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul and with the Philistine's head in his hand. Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. I think what's happening is David probably killed the giant before the events of chapter 16. David probably killed the giant before chapter 16, verses 14 through 23. In other words, Saul appointed him as his armor bearer in his court after David had killed Goliath. And the writer of 1 Samuel here is putting these events in this particular order in order to emphasize David's elevated role in the king's court. That's what the writer's focusing on in chapter 16, how David has this elevated role in the king's court and how the shift is happening, that that God is rejecting and actively opposing Saul. And while he's doing that, he's also elevating David. That's the focus here at the end of chapter 16, and I think that's why the writer of 1 Samuel does this sequencing this way. Chapter 17 shows us a huge contrast between David and, and Saul. It shows us the military contrast between these two. In the face of danger, Saul will be frozen in fear in his tent, where David will trust in the Lord and go into battle. Please turn back to to our passage in chapter 17, verse 1. Chapter 17, verse 1 of 1 Samuel reads like this. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and they camped between Soko and Ezekah in the Ephes Damim. This region here, as you can see from the map on the screen, is just west It's just a little bit west of Bethlehem. So David's from here. Saul's from from here uh, in Gibeah. This is Jerusalem, although the Israelites don't possess Jerusalem at this time. It's still possessed by the Jebusites. So the, the conflict between the Philistines and the Israelites is happening here. Here are the two towns, Soko and Azekah. And the Israelite army is camped is bivouacked on the north, on a north hill, and on the south, this blue box here, is the Philistine army on the, on the southern part of, of, uh, of the valley here. And we keep reading in verse 2, Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array to encounter the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountain on one side while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. So here's the Elah Valley, the the, the Valley of Elah, and it's separated by the two camps. The valley runs from east to west. It's a strategically important valley because it gave the Philistines, it's the route that the Philistines would take to make their way into Israeli territory. The Philistines are on the southern hill, and the Israelites are on the northern hill. And so in verse 4 of chapter 17, we read this. Then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. 
This is the beginning of a detailed description of a very, 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 very impressive soldier, a very impressive warrior. The writer wants us to know, and he's going to give us a lot of details about the impressiveness of the soldier that David is going to go up against. He's described here as a champion. That's the Hebrew phrase, Ish Benim. Ish Benaim. Literally, it's a man who is an intermediary, a man who is a go between. Goliath came out to represent the Philistine army. He would fight on behalf of the Philistine army. Goliath is, is from the Philistine city of Gath, which is not far from the battlefield. Goliath is a colossus of a man. I mean, he is a giant of giants. It says he, here in our text that he is six cubits and a span. Each cubit is 18 inches, and a span is about eight to nine inches. This would make Goliath nine feet, nine inches, just so you can get some sort of kind of comparison. Here is the Guinness Book of World Records. I guess they don't call it the book anymore, but the, the Guinness World Records for the tallest recorded man in history. Now, when Guinness says that, they're not recording the Bible, right? They're not referring to that record. They're referring to recent records. And the tallest man that they have recorded, that Guinness has recorded, is Robert Wadlow. He's, he was from Illinois. He died in 1940. And to, to give you some sort of kind of comparison, Robert Wadlow was 8 feet 11 inches. You can see he's just a giant of a man there in the, in the picture here. Yao Ming, the basketball player, is seven feet six inches, so he's shorter than Wadlow. Shaquille O'Neal is seven feet one inch. Goliath was taller than all three of these men. Goliath was about a foot, almost a foot, taller than even Mr. Wadlow here. The point is that Goliath was a giant of giants. I mean, he's just, as I say, a, a colossus of a man to to quote a movie, you could even call him Gigantor. I mean, he is just huge. The Septuagint and Josephus recorded Goliath's height as being only four cubits and a span. So that would be six feet, nine inches. In other words, the Septuagint and Josephus, Josephus is the Jewish historian that lived about a thousand years after this, records Goliath's height about three feet shorter than does the Hebrew text. Because the Hebrew text puts him at nine, nine feet, nine inches. And the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Bible, puts him three feet, a little more than three feet shorter, which is correct. I think the Hebrew is correct, number one, because the, the Greek is translating the Hebrew. And so the Hebrew's the primary source. Number two, because Josephus lives a thousand years later, and the Hebrew is written during that time period. And number three, the size of the giant's armor, which we'll see in a moment, justify a mammoth, mammoth giant. Six foot nine is tall, but that's not tall enough to justify the, the huge armor and the huge weapons that we're going to see here in the moment that the, the writer is going to give us. Goliath is probably a descendant of the Nephilim. Not the Nephilim of chapter 6 of the book of Genesis. All those Nephilim were killed in the flood. 
but the Nephilim of Numbers 13. You remember when the, when the 12 spies went in, when, when Moses sent the 12 spies in to spy out the land and to come back and give a report about the land? Ten of them come back and say, no, we can't do it. The, 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 they're too big. We can't do it. And two of them say, we can do it. We can go in and we can, we, we can take this. The two are Caleb and Joshua. Well, when the ten come back with their negative report, they say this in Joshua eleven twenty one. Then Joshua came at that time, excuse me, in Joshua Numbers 13, 33. There also we saw the Nephilim. There in the land of Canaan, we saw the Nephilim. They're the sons of Anak. This is in parentheses. Moses is just kind of given this side note. The sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. The sons of Anak were, were referred to as the Anakim. We'll see that in a minute. So the report, the negative report was, there also we saw, there in Canaan, we saw the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. Joshua, remember, God kills off that entire generation, the entire Exodus generation, because they respond to the, to the ten negative spies, and they're like, oh, you're right, we can't do it. They all don't trust God, and so God says, that's enough. You're going to wander for 40 years, you're all going to die off, and your kids are going to go in. And God uses one of the spies, Joshua, who, was, who said, we can do it. Forget you other ten spies. You're wrong. We can do this. He and Caleb, God uses one of those positive spies, Joshua, to lead the next generation into the land. And so by the power of God, Joshua would destroy the giants, would destroy the Nephilim from within the territory of Israel. And just, just if you, you know, just to kind of refresh on the, on the 930 uh, class that we've had on, the, on the, the covenants, when we were studying the Abrahamic covenant, Nephilim is the English translation of the Hebrew word Nephilim. Because when, when English translators get to it in the Bible, in, 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 in most translations, they kind of punt and they, they just say, well, we're just going to assign English letters to, this, to these Hebrew letters because they don't know exactly what it means. Usually you come across a Hebrew word and you say, oh, that corresponds with this English word and you stick an English word in your English Bible. But they don't do that. Most Bibles don't do that with Nephilim. They just transliterate it, and, which is to say they just assign English letters to the Hebrew word. And so we're not 100% certain what the word Nephilim means. In Genesis 6, well, I should say in Numbers 13, it clearly means giants. That's the context. And that's why the 10 negative spies says, we can't do it. Those boys are too big for us. In Genesis 6, whereas we studied in, in, our, in our study of the Abrahamic covenant, I believe that's a reference to these superhuman creatures that were produced from sexual relations between angels and human beings. And we spent a whole lot of time on that, so I won't, I won't belabor it tonight. But the point I'm trying to make is the word Nephilim, we don't know exactly what it means. In Genesis 6, it means at, at a minimum giants, but I think it means a whole lot more than that because when you look at the other verses like the verse in Jude or in 1 Peter, the context there in Genesis 6 of Nephilim is really referring to these super human creatures that were, that were a product of angelic relations, sexual relations with humans. When we see Nephilim in Numbers 13, though, we're really just talking about giants. 
So God empowers Joshua when he leads the next generation into the land to destroy the Nephilim from within the territory of Israel. But he didn't destroy them from within the territory of the Philistines. Joshua 11.21 reads like this. Then Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim. Remember, the Anakim are the sons of Anak, who are part of the Nephilim. Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. The giants that the, that the, the ten spies thought, we can't do it, God uses regular-sized people, Joshua and the Israelites, to do it with the next generation who would believe in God. Then keep reading in verse 22. There were no Anakim left in the land of the sons of Israel, only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod. Some remained. Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod are major Philistine cities. Ashdod here near the coast. Gaza, Gath, Ashkelon was another one, and Ekron is another one. And remember, uh, Goliath is from Gath. We just read that in the text. And so what we're seeing here is this giant of giants, Goliath, he's from, from the line of the giants, from the line of the Nephilim. When Saul became king, the people wanted a king like the nations. They wanted a king who was powerful, who was strong, who was impressive. That's how Samuel describes Saul at his coronation. I'm going to connect these two in a minute. Let me just talk about Saul and, and why the people wanted such an impressive king and what they got. Remember when Samuel presented Saul at the coronation, he describes him as, as strong and impressive, 1 Samuel 10, 23. When he, Saul, stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? Surely there is no one like him among all the people, among all the Israelites. So all the people shouted and said, Long live the king. They're excited. Is the, is, the Israelites and the people of Israel are excited because there's someone who will fight for them. We don't know how tall Saul was, but we know he's nowhere near the height of Goliath. No matter how big you are, no matter how strong you are, no matter how smart you are, there's always someone bigger. There's always someone smarter. There's always someone stronger. That is a truism in every age, in every culture, for every individual, for every person, except for God. There's no one stronger, no one more powerful, no one smarter than God. And so Saul fails to align himself with the omnipotent one. As a result, the threat of the supergiant will overwhelm Saul with fear. On the other hand, David will align himself with God such that Goliath's power, though real, will be insignificant compared to David's source of power. Goliath was intimidating not just because of his physique, his height, his stature, but also because of his impressive military equipment and weaponry. Look at that in verse 5 of chapter 17. 
He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was clothed with scale armor, which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. He also had bronze greaves on his legs and a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the head of his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. His shield carrier also walked before him. The point is, Goliath has state-of-the-art military equipment. He's got a bronze helmet to protect his head. Most soldiers didn't have helmets, and if they did, it would have been a leather helmet. Goliath has scale armor to protect his torso, and it's described here, when you, when you look at the weight of it, it corresponds to about 125 pounds. That's how heavy the armor was that he was wearing. His armor weighs the same amount as a small adult. He had bronze greaves. Greaves are, are shin guards to protect his lower legs. Legs. He carried a javelin between his shoulders, so between his shoulders is on his back so that he could reach back and pull the weapon. The weapon, the javelin that is described here is for throwing, for hurling at an enemy who is at something of a distance. He also had a spear for closer in combat. The spear is so that you could engage, use the weapon when the enemy is close up. And the tip of the spear here is described as having a weight of 600 shekels of iron. That corresponds to about 15 pounds. In other words, a big, a large, one of the largest types of bowling balls is what the tip of his spear corresponds to. We know from verse 45 that he also carried a sword, and we see here in the text that he had a shield. His shield bearer carries it for him. This weaponry, with this weight of weaponry, doesn't justify a man who's six feet nine inches, six feet six inches. This is a man who is huge, and that's why the Hebrew text explains what it does with respect to a man who is nine feet nine inches. Here's some imagery back from that time just so we can kind of get a, a visual image of, of some of this weaponry, some of the armor that, that, that you're dealing with here. This is a, 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 uh, an image of Assyrian scale armor. Remember, the Assyrians were, were the superpower. And um, shortly after this, uh, let's say about 100 years or so after this, scale armor is a piece of metal is pieces of metal that are, that are linked together and they're sewn into a piece of leather and that leather is, is maybe sewn into a cloth and the cloth is, is up against your skin. And so you have cloth, then you have leather, then you have the, the metal that is weaved in. But notice, see, so th- these are archers, right? These are archers and their scale metal, metal comes really below their waist. These are some of their victims that have fallen and the scale metal or the, the, the scale armor goes past their waist, and that's why you would need the, the shin guards to protect your shins, as, as, the, as the text describes in terms of bronze greaves. Then you have here this, this pottery of Greek armor with Greek weapons. And on this pottery, you see these Greek soldiers. The Philistines were descendants of the Greeks. These Greek soldiers are in full battle, battle gear. You can see there, uh, here's the, the shield on the back. It's a circular shield. Here's the spear. 
here's their, it's, it's tough to see all of this, but here's their, their, um, their armor, here's the helmet, and when you compare this weaponry to 21st century weaponry, of course, we think that's not that impressive. Right? I mean, you compare it to our weapons, our nuclear weapons, our tanks, our, our bazookas, our, our uh, sniper rifles, but this is state-of-the-art weaponry at that time, 3,000 years ago. And what the writer of 1 Samuel is telling us is that everything about Goliath is intimidating. His height, his weapons, his military technology, his presence produced shock and awe in his enemies. This is the image that we're getting here in the, in the text. And so you keep reading in verse 8 and you're told this. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, Why do you come out to draw up in battle array? Am I not the Philistine and you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. Again, the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. This is common in ancient times. It was common for an army to assign a champion and the other army to assign a champion, and then the two champions fight between themselves to the death. And if your champion won, then you won the battle. It's a way of minimizing mass casualties in war. Well, what I want to focus on here is the phrase in verse 8 that Saul, excuse me, that Goliath uses to describe the army of Israel. He says that they're servants of Saul. You see that in verse 8? Goliath says, am I not the Philistine and you the servants of Saul? You see, Goliath is like the vast majority of humanity. He lives by sight and not by faith. He perceives Israel's army as an army of men that he can defy and defeat, that he can defy and destroy because he doesn't recognize the God who is behind Israel. Israel's army is not the army of Saul. It's not the army of Saul. It's the army of the living God, a phrase that young David will use two times before he removes the head of the giant. There is a spiritual conflict that is underway here in chapter 17, a conflict between the gods, a conflict between the gods, a conflict between the living God, the true living God of Israel and the false gods, the false gods of the Philistines. Before the day is over, the living God will use his servant to reveal the impotence of the Philistine gods, to reveal that they are worthless, to, to reveal that, in fact, they are no gods at all, because in reality, there is no conflict, because the living God is the only true God. Keep reading in verse 11. When Saul and Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. The army of Israel... The army of the living God and her king are terrified and discouraged. Like Goliath, they live by sight and not by faith. They don't have a champion like Goliath. The Israelites don't have a champion anywhere close to Goliath. The tallest man that they have is Saul, and Saul's not going out. He's not going out to fight Goliath. He's going to stay in the rear with the gear, just like he did in chapter 14 with his son. 
Remember his son Jonathan goes out to fight the Philistines and in chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, Saul is described as sitting under the pomegranate tree while his son goes off and does the fighting. Israel's king is this way because he does not trust God and his troops follow his lead. The writer makes this point by using a phrase that the Jewish ear would have picked up on right away, by using two words that the Jewish ear would have been attuned to. This phrase, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. You see that phrase there in verse 11. It's made up of two Hebrew words, hatat, which is dismayed, and yara, which is to be afraid or to fear. These are words that are out of, out of a phrase that is used in the Scripture a number of times before. The Hebrew ear would have been focused on these words because they would have heard it from the Scripture, but they would have heard it from the other direction, from the opposite direction. Let me show you what I mean. Moses used this phrase with his troops in the Exodus generation in Deuteronomy 1.21. See, the Lord your God has placed the land, Moses says, before you. Go up, take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has spoken to you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Moses said it to Joshua who would conquer the land. Deuteronomy 31 verse 7. Be strong and courageous for you shall go with this people, Moses says to Joshua into the land which the Lord has sworn to your fathers to give them, and you shall give it to them as an inheritance. The Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Joshua says it to his troops in Joshua 10.25. Joshua then said to them, Do not fear or be dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies with whom you fight. This is the same Hebrew construction as our, as our passage in verse 11 of chapter 17. The same words, the same Hebrew, the same Hebrew words, the same Hebrew verb stems. Afraid is in the cow stem and dismayed, hatat, is in the nifal stem. Same stem, same verbs, but they're reversed. They're in the opposite direction. Saul and his troops did the opposite of what the scriptures commanded. The reason that they feared and that they were dismayed is because they didn't trust God. It's that simple. They didn't trust God to fight for them. They didn't trust God to fight for them like Moses trusted God or like Joshua trusted God or like David will trust God in chapter 17. And we will see more of that next time. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word in peace. We ask that you help us digest it and metabolize it and make it part of our lives. And we ask that you encourage us, like young David, to stand in a world that hates you and proclaim your word in your power for your glory. And we also ask that you give us safe travels home and uh, protect our region and protect us from the winter storm that is coming. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.